John chapter 21. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment round him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred metres. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it, and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books 
that rugby racing. When our boys were growing up, as a family, one of the things that we would enjoy watching together were the Pixar Studios cartoon films. And if you know those films at all, you will know that um, at the end of the film, once the credits have finished, there's often a bonus feature that comes at the end. Often quite amusing and, and funny, and it was uh, one of the things that we would always keep the DVD playing just to see that, because we knew that there was something like that that was coming up. But those elements were an added bonus to the film, but they were never necessary to the storyline. They were something that was nice to have and a funny ending, but not essential to what had been going on through the film. And maybe, as you heard John 21 read this morning, perhaps particularly if you've been with us as we work through the whole of John's Gospel together, maybe you felt John 21 perhaps is a little bit like that. Insofar as that the end of chapter 20 of John's Gospel gives us what seems to be, in many ways, that the perfect way to end the gospel. Look down with me there at verses 30 and 31. You have that great purpose statement for the gospel, that these things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might find life in his name. So that would seem like a very satisfying way to end John's gospel. But... This final chapter, chapter 21, is vitally important. All of God's word is good, and all of God's word is given for our benefit. And without this final chapter, there are a number of things we wouldn't know that we do, because we have John chapter 21. We would wonder, if we didn't have John 21, how Peter could have been restored following his denials of the Lord Jesus Christ, there when Jesus uh, was arrested. And this chapter brings into focus what has been a key element of John's gospel as we've been working through together. Because all of the gospels introduce people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And John is a wonderful way of doing that. If you want to share more about Jesus with someone, try and put a John's gospel in their hands. Because that great purpose of the gospel is it so that we might know that Jesus is a Christ. So it's great to share it in that way. But John's gospel, like the other three gospels, are also about following Jesus Christ as a disciple of him. So all the gospels have this dual aim of both introducing us to Jesus and showing us what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. And the big theme of John chapter 21 is Christian discipleship. It is Christian service. Because having seen our Saviour give himself for our sins on the cross, having rejoiced that he is alive and at work to us within us today by his Spirit, well, having seen all that, what do we want to do? Well, we want to go and serve him, don't we? I want to go and share that great message and declare it to all and any who will hear that they may know that joy of knowing Jesus Christ. But before we step out into that life of service, we are given three key lessons in John 21, all about Christian service. In John 21, we learn about the starting point of Christian service. In this chapter, 
we learn about the single-minded focus of Christian service. And then we also learn about the central motivation for Christian service. So we're going to look together and see three things in this chapter, three key lessons about Christian service that are for all of us as the Lord's people. And we start firstly as we see that a servant of Christ needs to be fed by Christ. A servant of Christ needs to be first fed by Christ. And here we turn to verses 1 to 14. Now this chapter is John's final eyewitness testimony to the indisputable fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And it begins with the final miracle that John chooses to record from Jesus' life. Now we know that that John has been selective in the miracles that he has recorded as he has gone through. There in verse 25 that we read right at the end of the chapter... Uh, He reminded us that Jesus did many other things as well, and using hyperbole, he says that the whole world wouldn't have been enough to contain a written record of all Jesus' words and deeds. Now, of course, he's exaggerating there to make a point, isn't he? And what's he saying? Well, he's saying that Christ did so much more than is recorded just in John's Gospel, or indeed all the other three Gospels. But like any good historian, John is seeking to write true history with a purpose. And so he is particularly selective in which miracles he records. And John doesn't call them miracles, does he? What does he call them? Signs, doesn't he? That's an interesting change of word. And I think he does that because he wants us to see that these miracles are particularly selected by him to teach us something about the Lord Jesus in each case. And in this final miracle, this final sign, therefore, is in verses 1 to 14. Well, the big thing we're being taught is about the need for Christ to first feed us. Verse 1, the disciples are back in Galilee, in their homeland. And then we read in verse 3, having had that list of the disciples who were there, that Peter tells his friends that he is going to go out to fish. And they decide to join him, And so they all head out onto the water together. We feel somewhat envious of them, perhaps, this morning. Have a lovely day in the sun, in the cooling breeze of a lake. Now, some look at this fishing trip of Peter and the disciples, and they think perhaps they're being disobedient. Because if you remember, right back at the beginning of of Jesus' ministry, what did he say to them? He said, leave your nets and follow me. But I don't think that's how we should understand uh, what's going on here. Jesus' command didn't mean they were never to fish again. They might have needed to fish again for food, and if they were so inclined, they might have even wanted to fish for leisure. But Jesus' point was that their life calling and focus was going to change, wasn't it? That was why he said, leave your nets and follow me. They would no longer be in their life calling fishermen, But as we know, they were therefore to go and fish for people in calling them to faith in the Lord Jesus. So I don't think there's disobedience going on here. But but what is clear is that Peter is keen to be busy. He doesn't want to sit around. And so it fits with what we've learned about Peter from the rest of the gospel. That Peter, even here in chapter 21, continues to be, well, a man of action. (laughs) A man who likes to act first and then think afterwards. Someone who speaks 
first and then reflects on what he has said later. He's an impulsive man, a man of activity. And we see a lovely insight into that later in the story because his headstrong and impatient nature is seen in how when he realizes that it is Jesus who is there on the shore, what does he do? Well, uh, we read that he jumped, verse 7, into the water. Actually, literally, it says he threw himself in. So keen is he to go and be with the Lord Jesus. And again, it's just a sight here of, of Peter's character. But it reminds us something about Peter, which is for Peter, serving Christ so often was first about doing. That was where he began. I'm going to do something for the Lord. And many of us, well, we can be like Peter, can't we? It's true that the Christian life is to be a life of activity. God delights as we attempt to do things for his glory in his kingdom. We know that we're not called to be passengers, and that's good and right. But all our activity for the Lord Jesus Christ must first flow from a deep feeding upon the Lord Jesus and from him. Jesus shows, again, his power here through this miraculous catch of fish. How is it a miracle? Well, it's one of these miracles that's multi-layered, isn't it? (laughs) It's a miracle because, of course, having gone out overnight and caught nothing, which is usually the best time to catch the fish, so I'm told, then in the brightness of the morning sunshine, when it's the hardest time of the day to catch the fish, what do they do? Well, they throw the net over the side, on the other side, just once, And following Jesus' instruction, they catch this huge haul of fish. It's a miracle that the net doesn't break. There are so many fish. And then, of course, uh, there is the catch, which is huge. 153 fish. Now, people speculate about that number. And they speculate about whether that number has a deeper significance. And I've read quite a bit about it this week. If you want to come and chat afterwards, I'd... Love to share with you some of the different possibilities and the possibilities for what the significance of that number might be. And maybe there is a deeper significance, and we'll be able to ask the Lord about that when we get to heaven. I think all we can say for sure is that a number shows us it's a big catch, and it's just one casting out of the net that gets it. And that detail fits in really well with how fishermen think, isn't it? I know a few friends who fish for pleasure, and one thing they will always tell you is how many fish they've caught. Again, just a little reminder, this is a true, accurate record because they're acting just like fishermen would expect because they're telling you exactly how many they have caught in the fish. The other thing this miracle shows us, not only is it the power of Jesus on display, it's also reminding us this is this same Jesus risen from the dead. Because what have we seen as we have gone through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? We have seen that he delights to provide extravagantly for his people. Think of the wedding there at the Canaan Galilee. What does he do? He produces a wine in great quantities. Think of the loaves and the fish there when he fed the multitude in in John 6. And what is it? It's It's a great number. And then just another lovely detail there in verse 11. Before you get the number, it is full. The net is full of what? Large fish. Not the diddy ones. Monsters. Big fish. Again, 
lovely picture that it really is Christ because he was doing that before he went to the cross and he rose. And he is doing it again. And what is it saying? It's Jesus. It's the same Lord Jesus. But there's something even bigger going on here. And that's what I want us to focus on. In all those things which are good and right and true, what's the specific thing, perhaps, a unique thing that we're seeing here in this sign? Well, it's Jesus showing his provision for his disciples before he sends them out to go and feed others. He feeds them first before they go to feed others. That comes out even more clearly when we get to the shore. Because there, on their arrival there at the shore, what do they see? Verse 9, as they land, they see that Jesus has already prepared breakfast, a fire, cooked fish, and bread. And it's just a lovely thing to notice that the fish that's on the fire didn't come from them, did it? It came from the Lord Jesus Christ, directly from his hands. He is providing, and he takes some of their catch, and he adds it into the meal, and then he gives them in verse 12... That wonderful invitation, come and have breakfast. This is another reminder of Jesus' care for his own as a whole person. They would be hungry. They would be worn out after a fruitless night of labor. And yet what does Jesus do? Jesus provides food to restore their their strength. But in verse 13, John particularly highlights that Christ feeds the food to them. He provides it and he gives it to them. And Jesus is teaching here through his words and his actions that they need to be first fed by him before they go out and engage in his service for him. That's the big thing. And friends, it's a great thing to do things in service of the Lord Jesus Christ but it is even better to sit at the feet of Christ and to receive from him. And that's what we need even before we engage in service. Too often we think that our Christian service begins with our activity, but it doesn't. It begins with us receiving from the Saviour, receiving by first coming to faith in him, and then coming daily back to him to feed on him by reading his words and to commune with him through prayer. This might be hard to believe, but there are times when I don't feel like eating my breakfast. When I'm nervous about the day ahead, and sometimes I don't want to eat. And I have to remind myself when that happens that it's good to have breakfast as a priority, because that fuels me for the day and helps me respond to the challenges of the day. Well, in a similar way, and friends, could I say even more importantly, we need first to be fed by the Lord Jesus. Because sometimes the thoughts about what might be before us in the day, and even perhaps a strong and godly desire to get on with what God has called us to do that day in service to him can get in the way of that even greater priority, which is to be first fed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a friend in ministry who wanted to encourage a group of young men 
in the church where he was serving, that they might grow as Christians and become more godly husbands and fathers. And he was praying that by God's grace, some might become leaders in the church in the future. And so he got them together as a group and started to try and encourage them in those ways. They met once a month. They read some good Christian books together and shared about how they were helping them and a bit about their lives together. But in all the things he did with them, he put the most emphasis upon daily personal Bible reading and prayer. Doing that themselves and then leading their families in doing that together. And by God's grace, that bore great fruit in their lives. A number of years later, some of them are elders, others are deacons, and they are all going on faithfully with the Lord and serving him. And a number would say how significant that challenge to daily feed from the Lord Jesus Christ was in strengthening them to go on with him. So, friends, I ask you, is your Bible open in the morning? Is your head bowed in prayer in the morning? There is no command in God's word that you must have a morning devotional quiet time. There is clearly a pattern in the Psalms that meeting with God in the morning is a good thing. And I know God has made some of us larks and others owls. But surely, if our desire is to serve the Lord every day with all that we are, then do we not need to fill up our hearts with food from Christ before we go to serve him? Because a servant of Christ needs to be first fed by Christ. That's our first lesson as servants of the Lord Jesus. Now we turn secondly to see that a servant of Christ needs to be motivated by love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we come to verses 15 and 17. And and now we're going to zoom in following that breakfast there at the seashore on Peter's dealings, sorry, Jesus' dealings with Peter. And this is important because there is something unresolved for Peter. What is it? Well, it's his denial of Christ there in the courtyard of the high priest. And and Peter wasn't alone in abandoning Jesus. So the disciples eventually all deserted him as he went alone to the cross. And, And so in some senses, they all needed this restoration. And Peter there, as he often is, as the leader, is the one who is um, doing this. But it's something that all the disciples need. But before Peter can be commissioned in his service, he needs first to be restored as the Lord's disciple. And before we get into the detail that we're going to dig into in verses 15 to 17, I want to highlight that Jesus' actions here in restoring Peter remind us that we need to believe that people can change and can grow as the Spirit works in all of us. Those who are immature can grow in maturity. And in some cases, those who have sinned can be restored to service. And if Christ was able to restore a repentant Peter, then we should be able to do the same. Never forget that change is possible as the Spirit works. Now, as we think of this scene there, beginning in verse 
15, there are so many echoes, aren't there, back to Peter's denial of Jesus in the courtyard of the high priest. Because there was an open fire there when, Jesus, when Peter was asked if he knew the Lord Jesus and was connected to him. And there on the beach, what is there? There's the open fire. And then perhaps even more significantly, there are three questions put to Peter by the Lord Jesus Christ. They're to parallel the three questions that led to Peter's denials in the courtyard. But all of Jesus' questions focus in on Peter's love for him. Because in his denials, Peter had demonstrated that his heart loved other things than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know exactly what was happening in Peter's heart, and we should be careful, but perhaps the fear of man or the fear of death may have been powerful motivations for why he said what he did say. Certainly, we can say that if his love for the Savior had been primary, then he would not have uttered those words. And so Jesus asks him, verse 15, do you love me more than these? The these, I think, are the disciples who are there, his fellow brothers. And having left everything to follow Christ, that would make the other disciples one of the biggest things that could take the place of Jesus as Peter's greatest love. And Peter affirms, replies to affirm that he does love Jesus. And then Jesus puts a question to him twice more. Those second times, without the comparison, just simply, do you love me? And the final time Peter hears it, we're told that he was hurt by Jesus' words. Now, the Lord Jesus would never hurt anyone without good reason. So why does he ask the repeated questions? It can't be that he doesn't know Peter's heart, because he does, he knows all things. He knows my heart. He knows your heart today. He knows exactly what's going on in Peter. So he asks him essentially the same question three times to show Peter something. To drive something home to Peter's heart and by the Spirit to ours as well. Because before Peter can be reinstated as a servant of Christ... Jesus wants to press home that all that he does and will do in service for Christ must be motivated by an undivided and unrivaled love for Jesus. Now, you've probably heard these verses appropriately spoken on at a service of induction for a pastor or an elder and That's fitting and right because these verses are very directly applicable to church leaders. Those words, feeding and caring for the flock, describe the work of an elder. And church leaders should never forget the possessive pronouns that go before the description of the Lord's people. They are Christ's flock. They are Christ's sheep. God's people belong to Christ. But there is also, alongside all that is right and proper for church leaders to hear, something here of wider application to every Christian. And it's this, and that's what we're going to focus on, that a deep love for the Lord Jesus Christ must motivate all our service. Too often, 
we find ourselves serving for the approval of others. And we're wanting to to gain their approval in that sense. But if you do that, friends, what will happen is that you will live on a roller coaster ride of the opinions of others. And you will not be faithful to Christ because you will tell people what they want to hear rather than what Jesus wants them to hear. Don't serve for the approval of others. If we're serving alternatively for our own self-promotion, that's wrong too. That's always wrong. Because when, and it will always go wrong, because when our service, in our service, we make much of ourselves... We take the attention off the Lord Jesus. Christ is Lord, and we are to become less so that he can become more. There's a warning against self-promotion. There's a warning against seeking to serve others. More positively, this, this, this call to be motivated by love for Christ reminds us that as we serve out of love for the Lord Jesus, that gives us strength in our service, doesn't it? It spurs us on to serve, even when that comes at great cost to us. It sustains us when it's hard to do that, and we've become weary and worn down. Because we serve, because we love him, and he is everything to us. And so then the great question we're all asking is, how do we stir up our love for the Lord Jesus Christ? That's a key issue, isn't it? If love for Christ motivates all of our service for Christ, then how do we fuel that love for Jesus? Well, there are many things we could talk about, but let's focus on one thing. In some ways, connecting back to what we've said already. We fuel our love for Christ through time with Christ. There is nothing lacking in the loveliness of the Lord Jesus, is there? He is infinitely lovely. And there is no problem with the availability of his diary. He dwells in every believer by the Spirit. If you're a Christian, he's in your heart today by the Spirit. So the problem, if we get right down to the heart diagnosis, is with us, isn't it? It's in creating the space in our busy lives. And then when we have that space using that for time with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's a time of year when many of us are ready for a holiday. I won't say I'm jealous of those who've already had a break, but we're all ready for one, aren't we? We're ready for a holiday. And holidays are times for many good things, times to enjoy being outside, times to deepen relationships with one another, times just to slow down, and that's good and that's right. But they are also times for unhurried and extended fellowship with Christ. I wonder, in all the priorities you have for your break this summer, maybe that should be the central one, alongside all the other good ones, to spend time with him to get to know him better, that your heart might be taken up more with Christ. Our service of Christ needs to be motivated by our love for Christ. And then thirdly and finally, and most briefly, a servant of Christ needs to be focused on personally 
following Christ, personally following Christ. And here we come to verses 18 to 23, where Jesus tells Peter something about his own future. And we read there in verses 18 and 19 that that Peter is going to die, that it will happen in his old age. This reference to his hands being stretched out is a reference to how he will die by crucifixion. And notice there in verse 19 that John comments that in dying like this, Peter will glorify God. Just a little reminder, but an important one that shows us that it is possible and right and good that we should seek to glorify God even in our dying. And then having told him that that is what is before him, Jesus says, follow me, end of verse 19. Because we are all to follow Christ, and that means different things for different people. And for Peter, it meant that. For some of us, it may mean that our death comes before our lives might normally have otherwise ended through the normal decline of our bodies. And if that was to happen, that would not be a tragedy. It would not be a tragedy because we can bring glory to God in how we die. I love the story of Hugh Latimer who when he was about to be burnt to death outside Balliol College in Oxford, still a cross there in the road where he was to be burned at the stake and was burnt at the stake, as he went out alongside his friend Ridley, what does he say to him? He says, play the man, Master Ridley, because we shall this day light such a candle that by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put out. What's he saying? He's saying that even in death like this, early, we can glorify God. And by God's grace, we can all do that as we bear a testimony in our dying, however that happens. But coming back to Peter, Peter responds to Jesus' words and revelation there about what will happen in his future by going back to an old pattern for Peter. (laughs) What does he do? He compares himself to others because he looks and he sees John there and he says, Lord, what about him? He's he's effectively saying, what what will following you look like for John? Is is he going to die like me? And then Jesus again in his gentleness, but in great clarity says to Peter in verse 22, if I want John to live until I return, then that shouldn't concern you. I'm not telling you about his life. I don't want your eyes on his life. I want your eyes on your life because I want you to follow me wholeheartedly with that focus. Your priority should be on following me, whatever that means for you. I think Paul picks up this same thought in Galatians 6 verse 5 where he says, each one should carry their own load. We each have a different calling in our lives in that sense. And here's the challenging application that came to me as I read this, friends, that we should not compare the path that we are called to follow to the way that others are called to go. We are to focus on our following of Jesus. And we need to take care that we don't 
get our focus wrong, either in our thoughts or perhaps even in our words, by focusing on what we think others should be doing in service of Christ, rather than on how we need to follow him, as he has called us each day. And in some cases, our road can be very hard. I know that's the case for some in our church family. And in all of our situations, that road will not be easy. Because how does Christ describe it? He says, take up your cross and follow me. So how then do we follow Christ when it's hard? How then do we keep our eyes on loving him and serving him and going the way he has called us to go, even when that's difficult? Well, we do it by keeping going back to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as we do that, we remember that he gave himself for us there. And when we look at the cross of Christ, we see that the cross assures me that Jesus will never call me to something harder than he has not faced himself. Because as he died there, he bore the weight of eternal punishment for my sins. Is there anything more than that, friends? No, there isn't. And so when he says, follow me, he's, it's wonderful, isn't it? He's not like the leader who stands there in the trench and says, over you go. He doesn't do that. He goes first. He goes higher. He goes when the fire is coming harder because he goes to bear our sins. And having done that, he says, follow me. But also, friends, As we look at the cross of Christ, we are assured of our Saviour's great love. Because there we see that he was willing to go through that to bring about our salvation. Why? Because he loves me. He loves me with a love that has no measure, as we know in Ephesians 3. That you cannot measure the the, the breadth and the, the height and the depth of this love. It's great love. And so I know... That whatever road he points out for my life and sends me on, I know that it's for his glory. I know that it's for my good. And I know that it comes from a heart of love. And so, friends, as we come around the table of the Lord now, let's remember him together. Let's remember and respond to his sacrifice. And let's resolve to follow him again today by feeding on him first by faith and if you don't know Jesus what another reason we have had today to follow him as Lord and Saviour and then to live our lives in single-minded service because we love him